0: Every driver and most non-drivers have seen one of these radar speed signs that show you both what the speed limit on the road is and your current speed, whether or not you are in compliance or non-compliance to the law as it's posted and as it's uh, declared for that part of the road. Studies show that these signs work, that is, when a driver is reflected back his or her speed, they tend to slow down. They tend to slow down and get at or under the speed limit. No data is available for how many people like me floor it when they see one of those to see how, I'm kidding, to see how much, I mean, not that I've never done that, but it's interesting to see how much you can make it jump, but try that next time. But the point is that um, these, these do work. They do get people to slow down. They're not as effective as having a police car sitting there, even one that's unmanned but uh, they are effective in causing people to slow down when they see the sign. And that's because they remind you. They remind you very obviously that what the law is and that you are not in compliance with it. These signs judge us. They judge our driving. They tell us immediately the speed that we're driving and whether or not that speed is lawful, or unlawful, whether we are guilty under the law or not guilty under the law. But the world is full of statutes, the world is full of laws. And most of the time, we don't get that kind of immediate feedback about what the law is, much less whether or not we are in compliance, in obedience to the law or not. But even though we don't get that kind of feedback, even though we don't know all of the laws that exist that we might be potentially breaking, nor do we always know when we've actually broken the law, the truth is that the law stands as written and we are accountable to it. Every law judges the person who breaks it. Whether we're aware of the law or not, whether we're aware of our breaking the law or not. It's a human principle of law giving and it's a biblical principle as well. That because the law sets forth a standard, it judges us based on that standard. And the law judges us in the sense, the sense I mean it is this, that it judges us by approving or disapproving of our behavior. The law tells us whether our behavior is acceptable or unacceptable to the government that made the law. And that's because a law is a standard of conduct. It spells out in written form what is expected. And when it's not spelled out in written form, that means the people are free to do whatever that doesn't break the written law. Whenever someone breaks the law, it set, the law says so. It sets that, forth that standard, and your behavior or mind is either approved by or disapproved by the law. Now, I want us to understand, though, that there's a difference between being judged by the law and being punished under the law. There's a difference between being judged by the law and being punished under the law. Every time we break the law, the law judges us. But that doesn't mean we are always punished under the law. In fact, most times, most um, infractions of any law go unpunished because they are not observed, they're not caught, they're not uh, watched, they're not caught when they happen. And so there's a difference between being judged by the law and being punished by the law. Now, I often use, and I think a lot of people do, we often use the word judgment when we mean punishment. We say someone's judging me or the, the, the government judged me, but we really mean they're punishing me in some way or another. To us, the word judgment, because it usually is negative, has a negative connotation to it. The word judgment is something we think of automatically in terms of disapproval, not necessarily approval or disapproval. But the truth is that judgment can be either. A judgment is simply a verdict about whether you're in compliance or noncompliance to the law, and sometimes the verdict can be positive. Sometimes you may be evaluated by someone whose job it is to enforce the law, and they might say, you're in compliance. They're still judging you but they've judged you as being obedient to the law, and therefore there's no punishment to come. And so if your actions really do break the law, then the law judges you, and that law may state what the penalty is supposed to be for violating the law. But the law doesn't actually do the punishing because it's not a person. It takes a person to apply the law, and the punishment that goes with breaking it. It takes a person to actually render judgment and enforce the law upon the guilty. And this is where God comes into the picture. Because the Bible tells us that every law judges the person who breaks it. And the Bible tells us this, that God will judge everyone according to his laws. I'm moving here from talking about human laws To talking about the laws of God. But it's helpful for us to think about our relationship with God and our accountability to God in terms of human law because we are regulated so regularly on a daily basis by human laws. As we've been studying this book of James together and as we've been working our way through this paragraph that is James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13, we've seen that Favoritism is the topic of this paragraph of Scripture. And one of the ways in which James addresses the problem of favoritism in the church is to say that favoritism breaks the law of God, that it breaks God's law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says favoritism is not just a relational problem. It's not just a problem that causes relationship issues in the church, but rather it's a sin against God. And now as we come to the final two verses of this paragraph, we're going to see that God is judging us and will judge us and will punish us according to his law, especially, and at least in this context, in the issue of favoritism. So James is going to establish for us that God will judge everyone according to his laws. Let's look together at these final two verses in our paragraph, James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. I'm going to leave verse 11, 11 through 13 on the screen for the moment, but I'm going to start reading in verse 12. That's the relevant part, so follow along as I read there. James 2.12 says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged, there's the point, by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In these verses, the scriptures tell us that God will judge everyone and that the standard by which God will judge everyone is his law, is his written code that is given to us in the Bible. Specifically, we're talking about here the Mosaic law, the law given by Moses. Now, one reason why God will judge everyone Someday, according to His law, is that He is the lawgiver. God will judge us because He is the one who actually gave the law in the first place, and we saw this last time in verse 11. But let's just glance at it again because I think it's it's important to carry through into today's message. Verse 11 says, For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. God gave his word. His word is law. When we break God's word, we're guilty under the law because we've broken it. That's the point that James is trying to establish for us. that He's trying to show us in this passage. God is the law giver. And so therefore, that's why we're accountable to him. He's the one who gave us the law. And I talked about this in a previous message again, but and and in other messages over many years. But again, God is the creator. And because he created us, he owns us. Because he owns us, he can make any law that he wants. And because he is our creator, we are accountable to him. For whether or not we have kept his word, kept his commands, kept his law or not, And because God is the lawgiver, he has the right to judge us. He has the right to call us into his presence and review for us our conduct here on this earth and evaluate, based on his written law, whether or not our conduct is obedient or disobedient, whether it's compliant or noncompliant. And so the Bible tells us, and James is drawing on this idea here, that God is the one who will judge us because he's the one who gave us his law. And it tells us in verse 12 that he will judge our obedience or disobedience to the law. The law is the standard. Our actions are what will be evaluated. And again, we see that at the very beginning of the verse when it says, Speak and act. Speak and act. This is describing the things that you and I say and do on this earth. And James says, we need to speak and act as those who are going to be judged. What we do is going to be the basis for the judgment that God gives to us, that God declares over us. Now, the Bible tells us that everyone on earth is going to be subject to this kind of judgment. And let me show it to you from Romans chapter 3, this is just one of many, many verses I could show you, but Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Now if you've been a Christian for any period of time and you've been subject to Christian teaching and Christian doctrine for any period of time, maybe you have an objection in your mind to what I've been saying, which is we're not under law, but under grace. Okay, Because the Bible does say that. The Bible teaches that. As Christians, we are not under the law, we're under grace. And I'll come back to that concept for a moment. But I think some Christians, I think some people think that because Christians are not under the law but under grace, I think people really misunderstand what that means. And I think one misunderstanding is that nobody is under the law anymore. That like the Jewish people were under the law up until Christ came, and then Christ came and he fulfilled the law, and now nobody on earth is under the law. I think that's a misconception that many Christians have, but it is a misconception. It is wrong. Why? Because this verse says, look again, Romans 3.19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the Jewish people in the Old Testament? No, the whole world may be held accountable to God. That means everyone who has ever lived is subject to the law of God in some sense, in some meaningful way or another. And this passage and others warn us that there is a coming day of judgment when you and I will stand before God and be evaluated for our lives on this earth according to how we've kept or not kept his law. On that day, you and I and everyone who has ever lived will have a private one-on-one audience with the living God. Is that a terrifying thought or what? that you and I will stand alone before the living God, the God who sees and knows everything, including what's going on in our hearts when we speak and when we act. And God, the Bible tells us that God will review with us the way we've lived in this world and compare the way that we've lived in this world to his law as to whether or not we are in compliance or in disobedience to the law as he has spoken it and had it recorded, written in a written form in his word. God will review your life and mine. And in his review, he will evaluate what we said and did in this life. Remember, verse 12 says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged. And this is not the only passage that says that our words will be one of the main things that God evaluates when we stand before him, along with the things that we've done in this life. And the standard that God will use, of course, is his law, his word, what he's he's written, what he's spoken. And remember that verse 10, which we looked at last time, says this. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And so when you stand before God and your words and your actions in life are evaluated, if you have ever lied, if you have ever coveted, remember that's the 10th commandment, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. If you've ever lied, if you've ever coveted, if you've ever worshiped another God, and it doesn't mean that you have to get down in front of a golden idol and worship it. If you've worshiped people, if you've worshiped image, if you've worshiped material things, if you've ever dishonored your parents, here's the connection to Mother's Day in this message. The Bible says, honor your your father and mother. If you've ever dishonored your parents, it's going to be evaluated by a holy God. If you've ever stolen something, if you've ever cheated on your spouse, if you've ever committed any sin at all as spelled out in the law of God, God will show it to you. He'll remind you of it. And you will fail the test that God applies on the day of judgment. And remember, too, that the context of all of this, the context of this passage, is the sin of favoritism. That's not one that we tend to put up there with do not kill. Do not commit adultery and so on. Don't worship other gods. We don't tend to think of the sin of favoritism in that same realm. But James was drawn into this discussion of judgment because of the problem of the sin of favoritism in the churches that he was writing to. And so that means not only if you've ever lied or cheated or whatever, but if you've ever acted out of favoritism towards someone, if you've ever treated someone poorly because of the way that they look or their appearance or what you have determined about them, God is going to condemn you on the day of judgment. God will judge your disobedience or obedience to his law. And the Bible says this, God will punish everyone who has disobeyed his law. God will punish everyone who has disobeyed his law. Look at this verse from Second Thessalonians chapter one verses seven through nine. The scripture says the Lord Jesus, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so as James wraps up this passage on favoritism, he reminds us that each of us was going to have a private audience with God. And he's already told us, as we saw in the last message, that the standard is God's law and that God's law is like a windshield in the sense that if you crack it, the whole thing is broken. And so one act of disobedience to God makes you and I a lawbreaker, makes us guilty before a holy God. Every law judges the person who breaks it, and God will judge everyone according to his laws someday. Now, this is all very bad news. This is why it's so quiet in the room right now because it's a fearful thing that the Scripture describes and that James alludes to in this passage of Scripture. It feels, to look at the theology of this as the Bible lays it out, it feels like a very hopeless situation. Because one violation of God's law makes us guilty of violating all of it, James says. But the good news is this is not a hopeless situation, not at all. And that's because God is a merciful person. Because God is a merciful God. And so here's a good message. Here's a message of hope for each one of us. Although the law judges us and God will judge everyone according to those laws, the Bible tells us this, that God will show mercy to some when he judges everyone. On the day of judgment, some will receive mercy. This is the consistent witness of Scripture when it describes that day of judgment before God. Multitudes will stand condemned, guilty before God, and will be punished for their guilt. But not everyone. The Bible says that some will receive mercy from God himself. Now, James doesn't exactly say this, but he says enough that we, and of course we have other scripture, to draw it out. If you look with me at the end of verse 13, the scripture says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We have the word mercy or one of its forms three times in this passage of scripture, all within the context of God's judgment. And although the beginning part says that judgment without mercy will be handed out, it ends by saying mercy triumphs over judgment. And that points us out and points us back to the issue of the merciful nature of God and the possibility, and actually not just a possibility, but a reality of mercy for many on the day of judgment. Now, before we dig into this point and start to pull out from Scripture what this all means, I need to lay a few pieces of foundation. I need to lay a foundation. You don't put foundations in pieces, I don't think. So (laughs) let me lay a foundation for this by making a few statements that you need to hold um, in your mind as we walk through this. And these statements are drawn from the theology of the New Testament, the theology of the Bible about the subject of mercy. First, let me define it. What mercy is means to withhold punishment from someone who deserves it. It's different from grace. They go together, but they're different from each other. Mercy means I withhold punishment from someone who deserves it. Grace means I give good things to someone who doesn't deserve it. But we're talking about mercy here, and that's the withholding of punishment to someone who is guilty and deserves that punishment. And the concept of mercy involves and is all about the issue of power. Keep that in mind because that's going to be really, really important when we get to toward the end of this message. That the concept of mercy is all about power. A judge has power over the people that, the person that he is evaluating. And if the judge shows mercy to that person, he's not using his power in the disciplinary punishment way that it was given to him. Okay, and so mercy is all about power. And mercy, the third thing I need to say before we dig into this, that is to remind you that mercy is an attribute of God. That is that it is a basic moral principle that is part of the essence of who God is. It's eternally part of his personality. God is a merciful God. His character is merciful. Merciful. And so as we dig into this point, this idea that God will show mercy to some when he judges everyone, we need to keep these thoughts in mind. We need to remember what mercy is, remember that it's about power, and remember that God has this by nature. This is who he is. He's a merciful person. So on what basis then will God show mercy to some? I've said in this point that God will show mercy to some when he judges, but how does that work? Where does this mercy come into play in the issue of judgment. And the first thing we're going to see in this passage is that the mercy that God shows comes to those who are under the law that gives freedom. God will show mercy to those who are under the law that gives freedom. Let me show you this again in our passage for this morning in verse 12. James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. We are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And then the topic of mercy is introduced in the next verse. But I want you to focus on this phrase right here in our verse. Those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The idea that James says there are those who are going to be judged by this law implies, and I think it's a deliberate implication, it implies that some people are going to be judged by one law, the law of Moses, the law of Scripture, and other people are going to be judged by this law of freedom, this law that gives freedom, whatever that means. Okay, and so the, the idea that, that there are two groups is indicated by the word those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom. But what on earth does this mean? It sounds like a double standard, doesn't it? It sounds like some people will come before God and God says, I'm applying the law of Moses to you. And other people will come before God and God says, I'm going to apply the law of freedom, whatever that is, to you. It sounds like favoritism. Right? It sounds like some people are going to receive a different standard of judgment, a different standard of, of evaluation. But this law of freedom is not a different law at all. Rather, as one commentator put it, it describes a different relationship to God's law. What's changed is not the standard. The standard is always the perfect law of God. But when James talks about those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, what he's saying here is that there are some who have changed their relationship or had their relationship changed to the law of Moses. And so what's being described here then is the need for us to have that relationship changed if we are going to receive the mercy of God. And again, none of us can perfectly perform the law of God as it is. And so if you try to pass the test on the day of judgment based on your performance, based on your words and your actions, as held up to the word of God, you have no hope. God's law is a unity, as we saw in the previous message. It's like the windshield of your car. If you break the law, the whole thing's broken. You're a lawbreaker, whether it was what you consider to be a minor law or what it's whether it's one of the big ten. The Bible says all of them break the law of God and make you guilty before a holy God. And so what is this law that gives freedom then? What is James trying to describe here? What he's trying to describe then is how Christ changes your relationship to the law if you're in him. That's what makes it a law that brings condemnation for some and that brings freedom for others. When discussing the issue of of the law of God and your relationship to it on the day of judgment, the Bible says it's all about your relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what changes on the day of judgment, whether you're condemned before God or whether you pass and are justified. And so God will show mercy to those who are under the law that gives freedom. But let me unpack this a little bit more. Because the Bible tells us that this mercy is based on the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. I just said that you and I can never keep the whole law, and just one little scratch of it ruins the whole thing, it makes us guilty before God and worthy, and in fact, receiving someday his eternal punishment for our sins. So how do we get out from under it? And the Bible tells us we do so based on, not on our performance, but rather based on the perfect Performance of Jesus Christ. See, God does not show mercy by compromising his justice. I told you that mercy is part of the core essentials of God, that it's part of his core character, his, his core personality. But so is justice. God is a just God, and God is a merciful God. And these are hard to reconcile for us, but they are not at all difficult for God to reconcile. And God did reconcile them in the person Of our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't show mercy by compromising his justice in the sense that he doesn't look the other way. You know what that phrase means look the other way. It's when you see someone who's doing something wrong and you're in a position to hold them accountable for it and you like literally act as if you didn't see it. You turn your head, let them do their thing, and act as if you didn't see it. And I know none of you have ever done that with your children, looked the other way when your children were disobedient. But you're familiar with the concept. That's not mercy. That's injustice. And that's not how God shows mercy. If God punished some who sinned and looked the other way when others sinned, that would be injustice. It would be unjust. It would be a violation of God's core character and nature. So what did God do? Instead of showing mercy in an unjust way, what God did was show mercy through Christ, our substitute. We as a church, we as Christians, we believe the Bible teaches the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And what that that means is that Christ did for us as human beings what we never could do for ourselves. God, the second person of God, we believe in a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son entered the human race in the human person that we call Jesus Christ. And just as the Bible says one person, one man, Adam, stood as our representative at the beginning of humanity, so Christ entered this world as a new representative for us. Unlike Adam, who could not and did not keep the law of God, Jesus kept every bit of the law of God. He was fully and perfectly obedient to every command that God ever gave. And in this context, remember James is talking about the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. That means Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor as himself, unlike any person who has ever lived. The Bible says that when Jesus, after keeping the law of God perfectly, then Jesus did something else with the law of God, which is he received all of its penalties in himself. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he substituted for us. He received the penalty that you and I deserve for our sins. He took that on himself. He was punished by God, not for his own sins, he was perfect, but rather for the sins of humanity, the sins of sinners, the, the sins of people like you and me. Every thought, every word, every time we disobeyed the law of God and racked up punishment that would have been meted out to us on the day of judgment. The Bible says Jesus received that in his body when he died on the cross for our sins. And so when God saves a person, God shows that person mercy by forgiving that person based on the perfections of Jesus Christ. Jesus absorbed the penalty for sins. And Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. That means that when God forgives a person, he credits you and me as if we hadn't sinned, as if we'd lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. And he credits Christ with our guilt so that God isn't going to punish us again because Christ already received the punishment for our sins if we are in him. And so this is all what I mean by the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. He kept the law and he took its penalties for you and me as our substitute. And so that means on that basis, God will show mercy because every sin has been punished and his law has been kept perfectly by Christ. But not everyone receives this. This is the law of freedom. It's a law that gives us a way to freedom because it's been perfectly fulfilled. That's what James is saying. But not everyone receives this. Forgiveness. Not everyone is the subject of this mercy. Not everyone has the law of freedom, that relationship change, applied to them. Instead, the Bible says that this mercy is given to us. It's received by faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get the death of Christ applied to you? How do you get his righteousness credited to you in justification? It's by faith alone. Believing. That God will forgive you if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then finally, his mercy then liberates us. It liberates believers from the penalties, but not the responsibilities of the law of God. God still wants us to be obedient to his word because his word is perfect. It is the righteous path on which human beings should live. It's not a a burden unless we are unable to keep it and subject to its penalties. But once we've been liberated from that now, it shows us the way to live a life that's pleasing to God, a life that lives out the new nature that God gave to us by grace, a life that is pleasing to the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And all of that, I think, is wrapped in what James means when he talks about that we should live as those who are about to be judged by the law that gives Freedom. It's the perfect performance of Christ applied to us by faith that frees us from the penalties of sin and frees us to live a life that's pleasing in obedience to God. Now, that's a whole lot of theology, okay? But it's all baked into what James is saying. We have to bring all that theology now back to the topic at hand, which is of favoritism. Favoritism is the subject of this paragraph. James is addressing the problem of favoritism in the church. The churches he is writing to had people coming in who looked good, who looked wealthy, who looked attractive, and they were treated well based on that. And it had people coming in who didn't look good, who were poor, who smelled bad, who didn't fit in with the middle class type of people that James wanted, that James knew in the church, and they were being treated poorly. James addresses this issue of favoritism, the problem of the, the poor being treated poorly and the rich being treated richly. He addresses all of that in the context of our obedience to God's law and the fact that we are going to be judged by that law someday. And he tells us that if we've received God's mercy, if we've been relieved of the penalty of our sins by the mercy of God, then we need to show mercy to other people. And so the final point in this message and the big idea for this message is very simply this, that if you're in that group that's received mercy, then you and I must show mercy. We're commanded to show mercy, not favoritism, as an intentional act of faith. If you're a believer in Christ, you've received the mercy of God. And the Bible says that everyone who has received God's mercy will reflect that mercy, will show that mercy to other people. Look with me again at our passage, and let's, let's focus in on verse 13. He says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Remember, we are to speak and act in a new way, in a way that doesn't show favoritism. Because we've been liberated by the law that gives freedom. Verse 13 then tells us the alternative. That if we don't speak and act in mercy, something's going to happen to us. And what's going to happen? It says judgment without mercy will be shown to those kinds of people. What's the implication? The implication is this, that there are people who believe that they have received the mercy of God and salvation. But they haven't. And you know it because they don't show mercy to other people. James says, if you keep on with this favoritism, if having been confronted with your sin by the word of God, if you keep showing preferential treatment to some and keep despising and dishonoring the poor, you're going to be treated with the wrath of God. Not because you lost your salvation, but because you never showed the kind of mercy that saved people show, that saved people have people who've received God's mercy show mercy to other people. Now, the way James sets this up is is different than the way that I would have gone about it. It's a good thing that he's the inspired author and not me, I guess, because the way he set it up is the way that God said it and the way that God wanted it recorded. But I want us to, I think, to really understand what this final verse, verse 13, is saying. We have to, we have to, pull out the theology a little bit. We have to kind of look at the pieces a little bit more closely. And so let me do that together. Remember the context is favoritism. And and more specifically, it's how the poor have been mistreated due to favoritism in the church. Now, if I were addressing the issue of favoritism in the church, and I didn't have the benefit of James's words here, God's word through James, I would go about it differently. I would say that poor people, that people who are disadvantaged, that people who are not well regarded in society, that they deserve to be treated well because they're made in the image of God. That's the way I would go about it. I would say that poor people, that people who are um, disabled or disadvantaged in some way, are still created in the image of God, and therefore they deserve to be treated with kindness and love and dignity for that reason. And I think that's biblical. I think the Bible would teach that. Because God doesn't look at people the way that we do. God doesn't, he's not impressed by people who are wealthy at all. To them, their wealth is like monopoly money to him. It means nothing. It's worthless. He's not impressed by people who are good looking because he is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so we could look at favoritism through that lens and say it's wrong for us to show favoritism because God doesn't show favoritism. And James did address that earlier on in the passage. But things have changed here. James is now making this an issue of mercy. And for us to understand why it's an issue of mercy, we have to come back to a concept that I laid down earlier and I need to bring back to your consciousness, which is that mercy is ultimately about power. Mercy is about power. In human situations, we think that the poor, the ignorant, people who aren't so successful in this life are beneath us. All right, God doesn't see it that way, but that's how we see it in human situations. We think people who are lower than us on some human standard are beneath us. And so in a human sense, it would be kind, it would be merciful to show kindness to someone that we deem to be below us on the latter in some way or other. Are you tracking with me? You're following what I'm saying here? I think James is bringing in the issue of mercy, not because the poor don't deserve our kindness. Remember, that's what mercy is. Mercy is withholding something. It's withholding wrath. It's withholding punishment from people who deserve it. I don't think James is using merciful in that sense here because the poor don't deserve to be mistreated. They don't deserve our wrath. They don't deserve condemnation and judgment. I think James is looking at it from the issue of power. While the poor do deserve to be to be treated well because they're made in the image of God, in the human scale they often are not treated well. Instead, they are often mistreated because we have power over them. We judge them because we're more successful than they are and we think they should be as successful as we are, and so on. But James is saying, in a, in a human sense, we should think about what it means to show mercy to others. Just as the poor man who comes in may not have anything to offer us, humanly speaking, may not have any, any beauty to offer us, any money to offer us, any prestige, any whatever to offer us. So we have, in the same way, we have nothing to offer God, and yet God was merciful to us. I think that's the point. God in his power showed mercy to us. So we who have human power in one way or another need to be agents of mercy to others in the world around us. Now, if you and I don't show mercy to others, again, that means that we haven't really been saved. We haven't really received the mercy of God. We don't really understand what it means to be changed by the grace and mercy of God. That's why James says here at the end, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. If you know the mercy of God, you will be a merciful person toward other people. And if you show favoritism, you're not showing mercy. That's the point. Early on in these series of messages and a few times, I told you God hates favoritism and his people should too. And this passage tells us God will judge favoritism. If we're hard hearted toward the poor, if we're unkind toward people based on their appearance, if we treat people who are offbeat in our culture as if they're strange and unworthy of our friendship and our attention, if we treat the better looking, the affluent, better than others, we're acting just like the world. And so, just like the world, we're unredeemed before God. We're not agents and recipients of his mercy, and therefore we will fall under the condemnation of the law. That's what happens. But if we know Christ, if we have received his mercy, then mercy will triumph over judgment. That's the last sentence in this paragraph. And of all the time that I spent studying this paragraph of Scripture, this is the one that puzzled me the most. Not because I don't understand it, but because it follows the phrase, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. The logical thing to say would be, judgment triumphs over mercy, but James says the other thing. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Why does he say that? He does it to remind us That in Christ, we have received the mercy of God. And he does it to remind us that James is very confident that the people who are doing this sinning, the people who are showing favoritism in the church, really are people of God. They really have experienced the mercy of God. He called them brothers over and over again in this epistle, and he'll continue to do so because he really believes they've received the mercy of God in Christ. And so what's the implication The implication is that saved people still sin, and sometimes we're not even aware of our sin. We don't see how our sin breaks the law of God. But when it's pointed out to us, when someone comes along and shows us from the Scriptures how we are in disobedience to God, if we love God, if we know God, if we've received his mercy, what do we do? We repent and change our ways. That's what James is calling us to in this passage. That's why he says in verse 12, Speak and act like those who are going to be judged. He's saying, you know, God, act like it. Be a merciful person. And in this way, then, mercy will triumph over judgment. When the people of God speak and act in mercy, then the church becomes a merciful place. The church becomes a place where rich and poor are accepted and treated well. The church becomes a place where people are loved, even if they are ignorant even if they believe stupid and foolish things, even if they are in some way um, unwise in the decisions that they make. If we're a merciful place, we won't judge people based on how they are when they come to us. We'll judge them the way that Christ judged us, people who need mercy, people who need to be treated with kindness and love, people who need to be shown the truth of God's word and called to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, as we come to the end of this section and we think about the issue of favoritism, the point, again, and the big idea for this message is, again, very simply, that we should show mercy, not favoritism, as an intentional act of faith. Show mercy, not favoritism, as an intentional act of faith. And it takes an intentional act of faith to counteract all of our normal human programming, to be kind to people who can help us, and to kick down people who can't. This is an intentional act of faith.